0: Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Or Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of sea level. That means we'll explore whether your home is at risk for future flooding and how to check, why the sea is rising and by how much, the historic context for global sea level rise, why some coastal cities would be more affected than others, some solutions that have been proposed, and of course the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenarios. So to start, Justin, perhaps you can tell listeners how they can go online to find out if their home is at risk for future sea level rise.
1: Yeah, so there's this cool nonprofit called um, Climate Central and they build a whole bunch of tools and stuff and they help quantify risk for individuals, individual addresses, cities, and so on. And one of these tools is called uh, Surging Seas and that's a risk finder where you can like type in an address and see what would happen in this particular place with some given amount of sea level rise. And one of the interesting things is New York City is actually at a much higher risk than a lot of other places, especially right. on the west coast, like Los Angeles, like Seattle, like all of these places are. Um, at less risk than New York City. And I just found that pretty interesting. And then you can type in your ad- address and see, you know, how at risk is your home in the future. And it kind of projects out a couple hundred years, actually, what, you know, what'll happen in that address. So, yeah,
0: yeah, I love that. That's definitely something our listeners should do, especially if you live in a coastal city. And it is interesting that you bring up that New York is. New York is actually experiencing 1.5x the amount of sea level rise as the global average. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I wasn't aware of before we started researching for this is how can the sea be rising more for some cities than for others? Isn't the sea just uniform all around the Earth? And the answer is no, it's not uniform. Mm -hmm. The ocean actually has its own topography, just like you would see a topographical map of the mountains, you can see the same sort of thing with the oceans. And so maybe we can talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about why that is. And I'll give Mm -hmm. the first reason and then maybe you can add on to it. So the first Mm -hmm. reason is gravity. Mass is attracted to other large, massive objects. And so Mm -hmm. when you have ocean near a continent, which is super massive, the water will actually be pulled in that direction. So it will be higher near a large continent than it would in just like the middle of the ocean away from any Mm -hmm. sort of large land masses. And the same thing is true for ice sheets. So right now in the Arctic, a lot of the water is actually being pulled towards those massive ice sheets. And because New York is in the Atlantic, like kind of close to the northern ice sheets of Greenland and the North Mm -hmm. Arctic, that once all of that ice melts, not only is the water going to rise because the, you know, the ice has melted, it's also going to be pulled away from the mass of the ice sheets as that get, becomes less massive and more mm-hmm. towards the mass of the Atlantic coast where New York City is and and New Jersey mm-hmm. and all these other at-risk areas.
1: Yeah, that was a mind-blowing piece of information to me as well, just... I always think of the earth as having a, you know, a uniform mass, or I just really, I I never, you know, really thought about it that deeply, but it makes Mm -hmm. sense, you know, that there are different parts of the earth that are a little bit, um, heavier than others. And that, you know, attracts water and other things to different places. And it's also important to note a couple things. One, um, the oceans themselves are dynamic. So there are currents that are flowing all throughout, um, the seas, and there's this, this really um, common current that's flowing from the Antarctic up along the American East Coast, South America and um, North mm, America.
0: The Great Gulf Stream.
1: Yeah, and the one of the interesting things there is when um, the ice sheets melt, it's actually changing the density of the water, which is causing the currents to slow down. So it's almost like the um the slowed currents and this gravitational effect and a couple of others that we can get into. The uh um, It's like a traffic jam. Yeah, it's just kind of getting stuck and <laughs> aggregating right there on the east coast of the US. Mm-hmm. And and that's you know, that's a huge issue as well. And Earth itself is dynamic. We have tectonic plates. That are moving and shifting and some places are rising some places are falling like and that's kind of like uh the west coast isn't as um at at as much of a risk for that reason there it's kind of rising Um,
0: right so like the gulf of mexico for instance is sort of sinking but uh but but california which is north of mexico is actually rising those tectonic plates are moving against each other so it's I was happy mm-hmm. to see that for LA I'm pretty much fine. I mean, you know, some of the surf spots will change as, you know, Malibu gets inundated, but the Palisades, Santa Monica, mm-hmm. you know, LA, really the Marina is like the only area that seems at risk. But mm-hmm. if you look at like Florida for instance, Florida is totally screwed. I mean, they they have, you know, Miami is a very flat City, mm-hmm. and so even if you think like, oh, what is you know, a two-inch rise in global average sea levels, or a four-inch rise, or a foot rise, mm-hmm. like how much of a difference is that really going to make? You need to mm-hmm. consider that if you're in a city that doesn't have natural mountains, that it's just going to seep all the way through, and it can just cover the mm-hmm. whole area of the city. Uh, yeah. So it's it's important to put in context, like. How big these changes actually are and mm-hmm. I mean maybe we can say a little bit about the historic context and sort of why this is occurring
1: yeah there's actually a couple other reasons I found sort of mind-blowing as well yeah. so the other reason for New York in particular why it's um, sinking not only is the sea level rising a little bit faster than average the the ground is actually going down and one of the reasons that the ground is sinking a little bit is because so let's let's think of a couch. So if you put a ver- if you sit down on a couch, the cushion immediately surrounding your butt is going to raise up a little bit. So historically, like many thousands of years ago, there were huge ice sheets inland from um, New York. And as these have melted over time, and this is just a natural thing it's not necessarily because of us uh, I mean it's partly because of us there's you know there's natural and human caused reasons but um as as this mass sort of dissipates and is not really pushing down inland anymore, which was raising up New York, it's actually um, melting, and then now it's like when you get up from a cushion the the part of the cushion immediately around you is going back down, right? And that's what's happening to New York on you know a super massive geological scale.
0: Yeah, and there's a term for this. It's called isostatic rebound, and oh, nice. you know basically like <laughs> 10,000 years ago, you can just imagine this giant glacier on top of New York, and then because it was weighing the land down, it was raised up on the edges, and New York mm-hmm. City was built on one of those edges. And even mm-hmm. though the glacier that was weighing it down has long since melted, geological mm-hmm. timescales move so slowly that we're still experiencing the effects of the middle of New York sort of rising up, whereas mm-hmm. the corners are now tilting down. And that's that's mm-hmm. another reason, like you said, why New York is in such a dire situation mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to address why this is actually happening. And you brought up, the fact that, you know, a lot of evidence supports that it's human caused. So I think it's important just to give listeners a sense of what the data actually is. And so basically, you know, if you've listened to our episode, The Future of Oceans, or even if you haven't, we should be moving towards the next ice age right now. So the Earth basically goes between these glacial periods and interglacial periods. And that's just based on where the earth is positioned relative to the sun. If there's a lot of sun hitting the northern hemisphere, then it melts the ice caps and then water rises. If there's not a lot of sun hitting the northern ice caps, then more of that ice is stored in the ice caps, therefore sea level is lower. And to just give a sense of how much this has changed. So during the last ice age, the world was eight degrees colder fahrenheit that's it just eight degrees colder guess how much lower sea level was with that coldness storing more ice in the ice caps guess how how much sea level was lower than it is Hmm. today eight degree difference
1: man i would i would guess at least like 10 meters maybe that's a overestimate
0: what do you what is it it was even more 400 feet lower wow so When people think like, oh, climate change, there'll be a two degree warming by 2050 or whatever, and people are like, oh, who cares, two degrees? Like, you know, I don't mind that difference. But when you consider how much that affects sea level, you Mm -hmm. start to get an understanding for why this is such a massive problem. And Mm -hmm. to give a sense for just what the range is, so in the last interglacial period, where it was at its warmest before the last ice age, it was only a few degrees warmer, but the sea level was 20 feet higher than it is today. So that gives us a sense for, if we do increase the global average temperature by a few degrees by the end of this century, as has been predicted, then we can expect potentially 20 feet higher sea level. Um, you know, that's- Average. The, average and yeah. like we and, talked about, and there might
1: be cities that are more affected.
0: Right. And and that's not necessarily what scientists like today are predicting. They're predicting that it's between three and seven feet rise by the end of the century. But right. just to give you a sense of what the possibility is, like at the low point, we have 400 feet lower sea level than we have today. And at the high point, we have 20 feet higher than we are are today. And if you look at how temperature has changed over time, it was basically we were getting colder up until the industrial revolution around 1900 because we should be moving towards the next ice age. But then starting in 1900, when we started spewing all this carbon into the atmosphere, temperatures started to rise gradually. And then once we get to like, you know, serious warming carbon emissions, like around the 1970s, it goes Mm -hmm. up even faster. And so you can just look at this chart and it's very, it's like, it's amazing that so many people still deny the science just based on how much evidence there is. Um, it's yeah. incredible. It's like it's like if you go to the doctor and your doctor gives you a diagnosis that's hard to swallow, like, you know, I'm sorry, you only have, you know, a few months left to live. And then you get a second opinion and then you get another second opinion and you get 100 second opinions and 98 of those second opinions agree with the initial diagnosis that you only have a few months to live but you still are in denial about it like that's basically the equivalent of what's going on with our public discourse
1: oh my gosh yeah it's really frustrating to watch i do think if you look you know if historians look back they're going to look at the group of people that denied climate change and denied that all of these things were going to be an issue and view them as a very ignorant, you know, almost like a, a, uh, a Stone Age era of intellectualism. Like, it's it's just not going to look well historically. And that's why I wonder, like, what people are actually thinking. Like, do, do people actually think that nothing's going on? Or do they just not want to lose money, for example, because it will come right. on some sort of, you know... Yeah, I mean, I would I say
0: know. part of it's confirmation bias where if you have an incentive to keep doing quote-unquote business as usual like if you mm-hmm. work for an energy company or a coal company or any of these companies that would stand to lose a lot if we had more uh hardline, you know climate uh laws mm-hmm. and regulations then you're just gonna basically deny it for as long as you can i mean it's it's similar to how like public opinion shifted with the our attitudes towards tobacco and smoking, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you go to the 1950s, people who think that tobacco can kill you would be extreme. So if you view, like, the Overton window, which is, like, the bell curve of public mm-hmm. opinion, the extremists on the far right of that curve think that smoking can kill you, whereas the typical opinion is that smoking is fine. But now, fast mm-hmm. forward to 2019, and the typical opinion is that smoking can kill you and the extreme opinion is that smoking is totally fine. It's so, yeah, that Overton window I hope will shift with climate change. And I actually predict that it will shift once Mm -hmm. there's enough people that know someone who's been affected by climate change and sea level. Like once it reaches the point where enough people know someone who's had lung cancer, and they smoked their whole life and then someone out like their brother didn't smoke and then they look fine and are healthy the same Mm -hmm. thing is going to happen with climate and just the question is how bad are we going to let it get uh, before that opinion window shifts
1: the thing is there are already cities that are seeing the effects of sea level rise miami is number one like they see these storm surges all the time and the I mean, I wouldn't say all the time. I think it happens a handful of times a year at this point. But by 2100, it's going to be a lot of flooding in um, Miami or even 2050. And uh, they're already taking action on this. I don't know if people are directly correlating it to, um, you know, climate change. But what they are doing is they're raising the roads. Sometimes they're raising expensive parts of homes and buildings such as HVAC and plumbing and stuff to kind of get it above where the storm surge, uh, water levels would be so that people are taking action and, you know, um, econ- or, you know, cities and politicians are taking action because of this. New York is building a, a barrier, you know, a sea, a sea well, barrier. Well, they have plans to build
0: it. Pretty... It hasn't gotten yeah, funded yeah, okay. yet.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're, are people already planning to take action? And
0: right. that's good. I think. Yeah. I, th- I think about this quote that I heard from New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio when he said that you won't find many climate deniers in New York after Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's just become undeniable. And like you said, there are major hurricanes happening multiple times a year, like every few months. And while that might not sound that terrible, consider the fact that for the last few hundred years, these types of hurricanes would only happen once in a hundred years, which is why they'll term them hundred year storms, hundred year flood. But now these, quote, hundred year floods are happening every few months. And that makes it so that you cannot, it doesn't make financial sense to rebuild your home if you're going to have to rebuild it again, you know, three or six months from now. So a lot of people, even in areas in New York and the outer boroughs of New York, have just simply abandoned their homes. And there's an entire town in Alaska and an entire town in Louisiana that are already being mass relocated to higher ground. So this is something that's already begun. The climate migration movement has already begun, even while people deny it politicians de- there's like this awesome our art. president yeah th- but there's this awesome art piece i forget if it was banksy or who but it was like politicians arguing about climate change while the sea level is like rising above them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like our cities are sinking and we're still arguing about whether or not it's man-made or if we should actually do something about it it's oh just incredible i'm um,
1: curious to hear um the cities that you saw that are probably going to be the most affected by this? And you know if any of them are taking action, and you know, what, what does that mean?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, well, I'll start with the countries that are most at risk, and then I'll say the cities. So okay. the countries that are most at risk are China, Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Thailand. So you'll notice those are all in Asia. And there's actually a stat that says that four out of five people affected by sea level rise by 2050 will live in in Asia or uh, Southeast Asia. Wow. So that is the greatest of, of the effects. And later we should talk about what are the geopolitical considerations, especially given you know the U.S. and China and the spheres of influence and all that. But as far as the cities that are most affected, those are... Dhaka, Guangzhou, Ho Chi Minh City, Hong Kong, Manila, Melbourne, Miami, New Orleans, New York, Rotterdam, Tokyo and Venice. And so it's not just Asia. Well, China is seriously at risk. Just I'll put another stat to it that is pretty incredible. 641 of China's 645 largest cities Are already affected by chronic flooding
1: really so this is like
0: pretty much all of china's major cities experience chronic flooding right now and it's only going to get worse and a lot of that's just because china's not that high above sea level and all their cities are most you know most of their cities are coastal or right by deltas and rivers you know as Mm -hmm. as civilizations tend to be Mm -hmm. But it's not just Asia. So more than 90 U.S. coastal cities are also experiencing chronic flooding, Mm -hmm. which is expected to double by 2030. And three quarters of all European cities will be affected by rising sea levels, especially the Netherlands, Spain and Italy. And Mm -hmm. Africa is expected to get hit hard as well because it's a developing urban area where there's a lot of makeshift settlements along the coast. So the potential mm-hmm. for disaster there is pretty huge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's truly a global problem, although the worst of the effects are expected to occur in Asia. Um, hmm.
1: It's interesting to think of what that means. So right now, India and China are two of the most polluting And least environmentally friendly countries in the world, which is directly causing some of these issues. Mm -hmm. So In a way that sort of gives me hope, right? It gives me hope that the the ones that are most responsible for climate change are also Going to be the most affected so it aligns incentives a little bit um, Particularly with China. I know um, India isn't going to be as badly affected as China, but still there, there's going to be some issues. Mumbai is right on the coast and that's a huge city. Um, I think it only has like 4% of India's population, but still they're going to have to take some sort of action. And hopefully that action is, let's care about the environment. Let's protect, let's take global action. let's co- you know Let's cooperate with countries across the world and right. do
0: something. Yeah, that's that's what I would certainly hope. And that is mm-hmm. part of what I'll talk about in my best case scenario. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, there are ways of mitigating the problem without helping the whole world. Yeah. And so maybe we should talk about some of the proposed solutions and the, yeah. the pros and cons of those solutions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first one is to build artificial so basically have man-made structures that keep the sea level the sea out of you know the cities right and this well is i would say the New first York
0: one is... is just stop emitting carbon well, <laughs> so that let's <laughs> well, just start yeah, there yeah. if we did that okay yeah then we'd have a much easier situation on our hands but mm-hmm. yeah then the other solution would be building man-made uh structures
1: yeah, yeah structures around that you know that are sea doing sea walls Yeah, New York City, Jakarta is another one that's in Southeast Asia. Um, And then, kind of like I mentioned before, like another thing that you can do, infrastructure-wise, is to raise homes, raise expensive appliances like the HVAC and plumbing, um, raise roads, and all of those all of those things will be, um, you know, contributors to this. And there's there's several other things too. I'm curious if you saw some of the natural approaches to this like how can yeah because i i really prefer those approaches to like building big old
0: concrete structures right yeah and and part of what you need to people need to realize with something like mitigating f- chronic flooding is that if your city is all concrete there's nowhere for the water to go it's the it can't be absorbed anywhere other than you know, if the city's above sea level, great, you can actually drain it into the sea. But for most of these cities, the whole problem is that they're not above sea level. The sea level is rising. So where are you gonna drain the water from your concrete if your water is at the same level or higher than the concrete? So by having natural barriers like marshland, that allows the marsh to actually absorb some of the water and this is a big yeah. this is a great solution and this has been implemented widely in Amsterdam which is mm. the most successful example of protecting a city against global sea level rise with mm. engineering because they they were really smart for a couple of reasons one reason is that they chose a small number of barriers so they could make them really strong rather than trying to just like barrier the whole coast they basically just like built a few key barriers um, where the ocean like meets the initial ports. Mm-hmm. And they also combined natural barriers with man-made barriers, and they allowed for the natural environment to pretty much stay the way it is. So they didn't have barriers where no water can flow in or out. They constructed them in a way where they can control the inflow and the outflow of water. So they can sort of release pressure as they need to which was not the case in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina struck. That was just Mm -hmm. a lot of massive levees that had no give. And Mm. when one of them cracked, the whole thing became unstable. And it actually created a bigger crisis than if there had not been levees because the water rushed in all at once. People weren't prepared for it. And, you know, the other consideration is that even if the levees do work, like let's say they withhold the seawater from rushing in, if you have a major hurricane, there's a lot of rainwater and rainwater isn't prevented from the levees. So you're still going to experience a lot of flooding inside your city. And that's why natural Mm -hmm. barriers are are so important. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And to kind of address that point, the rain part and the flooding, there are some cities that are proposing big you know, filters that will essentially pump water out from the city back into the ocean. And so that's one. So one that I thought was sort of obscure and one that I didn't really think was, you know, an actual solution is actually going on in the Hamptons right now. So apparently in the Mm -hmm. Hamptons, they took out so much water from the ground that, um, the ground is like collapsing in on itself because the right. water was providing support and kind of keeping the the uh land at a certain elevation now that they took all the you know all this water out it's collapsing so what they're doing is like re-injecting water into the ground in places like that which is another solution and i think i don't know if that's like a what something that can be adopted widely but it's there's a lot of different approaches to this right. and that well might... I,
0: I know that it's an issue where a lot of oil extraction and fracking has taken place mm-hmm. where the the land is literally sinking because you're removing all the water that's on all the oil or natural gas mm-hmm. or water yeah. that's yeah. been underneath
1: yeah yeah that's a really interesting one and also just doing something as simple as building bigger beaches you know you can it creates a sort of um barrier between the ocean and the land and this this wouldn't work for all cities but it can work in some coastal cities to just have larger beaches this is something thinking about um you know Los Angeles and all of the beaches um near Sa- Santa Monica, Venice they're very long right and i think that's probably a good you know a good way to combat potential Uh, storm surges, if that even happens in California, but um, maybe even a tsunami, like a a minor tsunami, it could help mitigate that risk if the beaches are long enough, because getting through the beach is going to be a huge hurdle for the water. Um, So anyways, that's another natural solution. That's probably the simplest thing to implement.
0: Yeah, and that kind of reflects the solution that's been proposed for New York, that mm-hmm. Bill de Blasio proposed, which is will cost 10 to 20 billion dollars if funded, hasn't yet received federal funding especially cuz Trump doesn't exactly love Bill de Blasio or the uh, you know, New, yeah. New York is suing him on multiple counts and all that. But anyways, the plan is pretty brilliant if you look at it. There's some animations that visualize what it would look like and it has a lot of natural barriers, like you're talking about. It has a park that has these rolling grassy hills that rise up pretty high. So not only does that act as sort of a natural seawall, but it also absorbs some of the water that's coming in. And then they have like a massive boardwalk. So, you know, you have these levees, but you can sort of walk along top them, so it's nice for people. And you can sort of remake a city in an environmentally friendly way that also protects it from sea level rise but there's a couple problems or challenges that you need to face one is that sea level rise isn't something that is just going to get to a certain level and stop like we're going to have to continually increase the height of these natural or artificial barriers like mm. for instance just in 2018 the city of new orleans spent 14 billion dollars. On upgrading their levees, the very next year, in twenty nineteen, a report came out that said that these barriers that they spent fourteen billion dollars building will be totally inadequate in the next four years. Oh my! Just God. given how much sea level is expected to rise and how much uh, New Orleans is expected to sink as a city. So, jeez, that's a major issue. And then the other issue other than that you just have to keep upgrading them constantly is that not all cities and not all countries can afford it so yes it makes sense to you know spend maybe 20 billion dollars to protect lower manhattan and wall street and all of the economic activity going on there and you know we're wealthy enough that we can probably make that work but a lot of these cities and countries in asia like Bangladesh and Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh city. And I mean, these are not wealthy places. And it's quite likely that they're going to either have to do a mass exodus to higher ground, or they're going to have to sell their arm and their leg to China to get China's engineering and financial support. And what are the implications of that? Right? So it's, and then what How are much, the implications? I to hear you talk about that. Yeah. So China has already started to respond to the threat of flooding and sea level rise, and they have a much greater ability to address it than, say, the U.S., because in the U.S., if you say, OK, all of the people living from here to here have to leave. Right. Like it's too dangerous. Um the only way we really do that is like we'll offer enough money that's that those people who live there will agree to leave. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's actually happened in areas of like New York and New Jersey already where they right. offer higher than market value prices. But in China, they can just tell them to leave, like go leave. Like, there's, <laughs> there's no major public blowback from making people move from one place to another. And also mm-hmm. their engineering chops are just incredible. So, you know, yeah. China is famous for building these artificial islands in the South China Sea to exert their military force over the whole region. So it's, it's quite within their capability to build major seawalls and, you know, other barriers as needed. But, you know, the question is, how will their neighbors fare? Right. And 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 how much extra pollution will occur because of all that construction. So one of my concerns is that they'll do enough safeguarding of their cities that China itself will be fine. But the global average temperatures and sea levels will continue to rise because they don't take a global stance on it. Like that would be a a bad scenario. And then Mm -hmm. because these other Asian countries are in such dire straits, it could be the case that they all need china's support especially if america's not helping them out and then china could seriously have control of the whole south china sea and a lot of the countries there and that could put you know america in an even more difficult position and uh you know in the worst case scenario it could be like another path for china to exert authoritarian control over an even wider sphere of influence than today as american influence diminishes especially if we continue to deny the reality of climate change
1: yeah now that makes me wonder if china actually so it seems like china would actually be incentivized to not take action if possibly if the goal was to exert power like you said and that would be an issue and obviously if the other thing is if um on the, in the U S the East coast has a ton of military bases and those military bases could be in jeopardy if they're experienced chronic flooding or if they are experiencing that in the future, then, you know, they're going to have to move. And if, if we don't prepare adequately and things just, you know, a big storm comes through and floods these, then our, you know, our defenses could be weakened for a little bit and it could lead to, um, you know our whole, um, economy or our whole, you know, structure as a nation to sort of be weakened for a little bit, depending on how big the storm is. And also depending on who, uh, takes advantage of it, we could be in serious trouble if someone's like, Oh, us is very weakened right now. Let's take action. You know, it's time for us to make our, make our place in the world whether that's a china or a russia or something else um
0: yeah it's it's a little bit scary and and maybe i don't know if there's anything else you want to touch on but maybe we get into the future scenarios now
1: yeah let's let's do it
0: all right justin what is your worst case scenario worst case scenario
1: Yeah, so I think we already touched on this a little bit, but it's how does China respond to this, and how does the rest of the world respond to this? Because there's a couple things. I think in the worst case, the U.S. doesn't respond, and China doesn't respond, and other countries don't respond, but they're all for different reasons. So in the U.S., we don't respond because whoever is in power denies the problem. And I think in China... The worst case would be they don't respond to the issue or they only protect themselves by building barriers, which leads to them, you know, not really taking any action within their own com- or their own country and not lowering carbon emissions and not really caring about climate change at all. because they're at a strategic advantage geopolitically to be able to help all of the other countries exert more dominance. And I think that might be one of the extra, you know, they have a lot of potential tipping points that would put them into a, a world uh, dominance position. But this might be one of those factors that, lead, that leads them to um, be, just, or every other country to be reliant on China. And again, that's not good. If, if countries surrounding China and all over the world are reliant on China, this could include Africa. And everyone, you know, pretty much everyone except for the U.S. and maybe Canada, maybe some countries in Europe, um, if we're not reliant or if we if they are reliant on China, then we're going to see some potentially really bad circumstances that are very in line with a lot of the other worst case scenarios that we've talked about in this podcast. Yeah. Um, So, yeah
0: definitely so i'll get into mine but i want to respond to a few things you said Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean we should do a whole episode on china soon but Mm -hmm. it does seem like right now the world is shifting there is a great decoupling of the global economies and Mm -hmm. people are you know countries are shifting either to china or towards the united states or but America's influence as a whole is sort of waning as we, you know, put more interest in our own interests rather than the global interests. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would ever be the case that all other countries besides the U.S. are in China's sphere of influence. I think right. that if, if anything, there's like these five countries known as the five eyes, like, uh, like visual eyes. And mm-hmm. these are countries that trust each other enough to actually share intelligence information like through the equivalent of the FBI or the NSA. We share information back and forth. And these are all the English-speaking democracies of the world. So the United Mm -hmm. States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. So I think in those five countries, and probably in in most of Western Europe too, the influence will largely still be American, let's say, until 2050. You know, it's hard to predict beyond then. Mm -hmm. But... The real question is: Will other parts of the world, like Eastern Europe, like Asia, Southeast Asia, will those Africa? Africa oh yeah, Africa is a big one. Will all of those areas basically come to the point where, yes, we would like to be aligned with democracies that promote freedom of thought and speech and the democratic process? But if America is not going to offer any support to us in our dire circumstance, then the alternative is for us to die, then well, of course, we're going to go to China for help and, you know, Mm. we'll let them build their roads and infrastructure and exert some of their laws and rules and censorship over us. And that's, Mm. like, the big concern as it relates to, you know, geopolitical movements with sea level rise. And like you said, there's a lot of other factors, too, so I don't want to make sea level to be, like, the main factor, but, Mm. you know, there's other factors with AI, with... Which countries are the most, uh, you know, have the most control over space, over, yeah. di- over, yeah. uh, you know, shutting down core infrastructure, over cybersecurity, yeah. a lot of those sort of issues. Um, as far as what's the worst case, just putting a number to it, the worst case seems to be seven feet of sea level rise by 2100, globally averaged. Yeah. That would be enough to swallow up major coastal cities including cities in the U.S., and cause a climate migrant crisis. And the big question is, how will America, China, and other countries respond to that global climate crisis? In the best case, we come together and we all help each other because we realize it's something that, in the end, can only be solved globally. But in the worst case, it's something where we don't help each other and it creates chaos and it creates more feelings of fear and nationalism. And unfortunately, the current state of affairs is more in, trending in that way with increasing nationalism. Um, it's worth noting that in all of history, there has never been a major war between two democracies. The major wars, like think of any world war or any major war you learned about in history class, They always involve at least one dictatorship or authoritarian regime or king or queen or whatever. You never have two major democracies fighting against each other. So if we're saying worst, worst case, this is one of the trends that leads to a major world war. I'm not saying that's likely, but I'm just saying like you could imagine, for instance, a serious struggle over resources like between mm-hmm. India and Pakistan, that mm-hmm. sparks a global conflict because you literally have people who are f- fighting over the amount of fresh water that's left, especially in the Kashmir region. So yeah. that's what I would say for my worst case scenario.
1: Yeah. And just to kind of add on that, it, there's so many other effects that um climate change is causing. There's so many other things that can go wrong because of climate change. And yes, sea level is one of them, but also we've, you know, the, the land around coasts are going to be unproductive, even if it's not totally underwater in the short term, they might be unproductive if there's too much flooding. And if that's the case, there needs to be a shift of, you know, agriculture, more inland. And the more, the more that these uh, resources shift around, then the more conflict there will be for these resources. And this could happen way sooner than 2100, right? right? Even, even in the worst case sea level rise, you know, the, the productive land is going to decrease. And that has economic impl- implications and just social implications. What happens if New York actually is, you know, experiencing chronic flooding? It's right. one of the major economic capitals of the world
0: yeah and you know dan carlin from hardcore history in his new book he talks about systems collapse as one of the mm-hmm. major triggers of the end of an empire and mm-hmm. if you have enough of these problems where let's say the levees burst so new york is flooded the government doesn't provide enough relief you know the economy is disrupted farmland is no longer productive people start getting diseases, people start to lose confidence in the U.S. dollar, people start to move elsewhere. If enough things go wrong, then it can reach a tipping point where the whole system sort of collapses. Mm -hmm. And that's why in Children of Men, the movie, or the book, you have the former United States of America. That's basically what that future scenario is. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, again, I'm not saying that's likely, but... It's also a little bit scary when you think about how inefficient, you know, government bureaucracy is in America and just looking at New Orleans as an example, this was like something that they could have built it well enough, like they did in Amsterdam to protect the city. But the reality is that you have these politicians that only care about the next four years of, you know, getting reelected. And so they'll, you know, they'll pass the bill, they'll build the levees, whatever. But they don't really give a shit if the levies fail after they're out of office, and you have, and it's like you have this situation where we have very short-sighted thinking. People only care about what's directly relevant for them, and that's mm-hmm. where I think a country like China is just way better positioned to protect themselves and you know their sphere of influence than the U.S. Unfortunately.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big. Big issue. Maybe let's lighten it up and talk about the best case scenario. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What do you think then?
0: Best case scenario. So I'll start with the scientific predictions, which is that the best case is one to two feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. Mm -hmm. So notice that it's not zero, there is no scenario where sea level does not rise. I mean, the, the best, best case is maybe like 40 centimeters of sea level rise by the end of the century. And even that has some serious implications. So it's a difficulty. But I think there is the possibility that people will come together, especially as younger people really start to care about this more and more. I mean, we've already seen the climate strikes and the, you know, the movements worldwide so as time goes on, as the old guard gets replaced by newer, you know, younger generation of people, I believe public opinion will shift. And especially like I said, with the concept of, you know, one degree of separation where everyone knows someone who's had, you know, in the sixties or seventies, everyone knew someone who was affected by smoking adversely. Similarly, by the year 2040 everyone will know someone who's been affected by climate change in some way and once that happens i believe there will be a tipping point and a shift in the public zeitgeist where we will start coming together and even in places like china i think the public and the youth movement especially in hong kong and you know we are seeing some positive trends in that direction where if china doesn't take a global stance to help not just you know, their own country from sea level coming in, but help the world from climate change as a whole, that could be really positive. And I mean, even just the fact of how successful the Hong Kong protest has been and how a lot of countries are now sort of thinking about maybe decoupling from China altogether and you know creating a, se- a separate economic route, that may put enough mm-hmm. pressure on China to actually, become more democratic and allow for some more freedoms and I could envision a scenario where China and the US both have leaders that want to solve climate change and then we implement something like the Paris Accords on steroids and we seriously are able to avoid the worst effects of sea level rise we've done it before we did it to restore the ozone we outlawed you know, CFCs so that the ozone could be restored, at least partially. We did it in the 60s with all of these, you know, aerosols and pollutants were mm-hmm. killing our birds. And the yeah. book Silent Spring was written, and we were able to bring back the birds. And in L.A., in the 80s, there was way more pollution because there were no good regulations for car emissions. Now we have much better regulations, and L.A. is nowhere near as polluted as it was in the 80s and 90s. So this is something that can be fixed. It's not something that we should just wave our hands up and say, oh, well, it's, you know, our you know it's going to be shitty for our kids and our grandkids, but what am I supposed to do? It's inevitable. We shouldn't have that attitude. Even if it yeah. seems dire, America, or not just America, but human beings are capable of great things when we put our minds to it. So I, I actually think that the best case is not out of reach mm-hmm. and that we can come together to solve the worst of this issue and limit it to a foot of sea level rise by twenty one hundred, let's say. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to highlight that in the best case, you know, sea level is going to rise And my, mm-hmm. my best case was fairly similar. And really it, the best case for me is how we respond and what kind of solutions um, we take and what kind, of, um, what kind of cultural shifts happen. So with the actual solutions, I would love it if we can take a more holistic approach to climate change and mitigating uh, sea level rise and flooding. So we talked a little bit about the natural barriers and, um, these natural solutions, and I would, I would love it if we could just like build, it's almost like building the natural ecosystem. Like it's, it's two birds with one stone. And it also turns out that mangrove forests are amazing at capturing carbon. Like it's a double whammy. It's, it's a more systemic approach to combating climate change. And the other thing that we can do is add redundancy to our systems because there is climate change. There are going to be huge storms that maybe wipe out complete um, you know hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of acres in um, in agricultural producing land like maybe down in South America or maybe even in the Midwest. If that happens, we need redundancy. We need to design our systems, our infrastructure as nature would. So like in nature, there's, if you think of how networks work, there is like, if one path gets cut off, for example, in nature, whether this is a supply chain for ants or, or cells being organized and sending nutrients, if one path gets cut off, oh, this, this natural system will just reroute. All of these um, resources in some sort of uh, back road, essentially, to get to the, where it needs to go. And if we can have these holistic systems to approach, cl- or to combat climate change and all of the nasty things that will come with it, then I think we will be more resilient as a human species, which is um, ultimately. The best case i think that can happen obviously public perception needs to shift and in the best case something happens like you said there is a tipping point people are like well shit like this is actually a thing we need to admit it to ourselves and honestly another you know kind of a um a related thing is if the whole republican party as it currently stands Is basically laughed out of the room like the the Republican Party will need to totally rebrand itself Mm -hmm. because of how wrong it has been for so many things once once all of those things are realized to their fullest extent then the that party is going to have to shift Mm -hmm. and and if they're true you know if you take the word conservative you know if you're conservative you should probably want to conserve things and take a more long-term view. Like that should be the view of what a, what a conservative is. And maybe that's, maybe that is a rebranding that would take place in the best case. And then we have two very reasonable parties that are just taking different sides of actually achieving the objective greater good of humanity. So that's, you know, that's kind of the best case. I like that a lot. Very U S centric, but, um, yeah
0: yeah it reminds me of this quote i forget who said it but it said don't let any crisis go to waste which is that anytime there's some major crisis you have the opportunity to rethink how you would build society and that's a major opportunity so i i totally agree with you mm-hmm.
1: yeah so maybe let's round it out with the likely scenario yeah. Most likely scenario.
0: So the likely scenario is that temperatures globally will rise between 3 and 7 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100. That means that by 2100, sea level will rise by between 2 to 7 feet. And like we said, some areas will be more affected than others based on gravitational poles, the currents, the winds, um, other factors. So that gives you a sense for how massive this could be. As far as how it's actually going to play out, I think what's most likely is that there is not going to be any swift action in the next few years like the Paris Climate Accords. I think that is likely to happen by 2030, but I wouldn't say it's likely in the next, you know, two to four years or or something like that. Like the only way that the Democrats win is with a moderate and the major issues right now are mostly healthcare um, and, you know, raising the minimum wage. And so even though climate is a major issue for a lot of people, it doesn't seem like the first issue we will address even if a Democrat is elected. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's, it'll be more difficult to pass a climate bill than a healthcare bill, let's say, because conservative yeah. voters care about their health care a lot more than climate right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do think, like I said, sort of in the best case, I do think public opinion will shift at a certain point once there are enough people that are affected by climate change. As far as how many people are going to be affected, I've seen numbers that by 2050, 300 million people living in coastal cities will be affected by sea level rise. So just for context, the whole U.S. has about 325 million people. So you can imagine the entire population of the U.S. spread globally being seriously affected by sea level rise. And that's about you know 300,000 houses will be basically destroyed by chronic flooding by 2045. So a lot of real estate will just plummet. So when you think about the real estate value of anywhere in New Orleans or even places like Oxnard in California, I would not recommend buying a house there <laughs> unless you yeah. uh, unless you're you know, the little mermaid or something. Mm (laughs) Um, and yeah, I think that most likely we're going to experience a lot of damage. There's going to be some huge hurricanes. There's going to be more and more quote, hundred year floods that become like, you know, semi yearly floods. And that's going to create a shift where eventually we do take resounding, uh, you know, we make a resounding commitment towards preventing mm-hmm. the worst effects of climate change. The question is just how long will it take to get to that point and how much damage will be done. So I would say, like, if I had to put a certain number to it, I'd say that, you know, we're we're probably going to experience two, maybe one, like two feet by 2050 and maybe six feet by 2100. And if you fast forward even further in the future to 2200 A.D., that's expected to be about 20 feet or more of sea level rise. Wow! So then the other the final point I'll make is that imagine what that society looks like. And I have sort of two visions in my mind. One vision is like a bunch of walled cities that still have a lot of concrete and there's still a lot of fear and geopolitical posturing. Another vision is one that's a more natural, open environment where we build our cities up with natural barriers. We've decided to tackle this globally. We have more understanding between countries. We've really rallied behind what it means to be an earthling and what needs to be done to protect the earth. And honestly, I could see both scenarios. It's, the most likely scenario is probably going to be somewhere in the middle.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you. Now, I think you pretty much touched on most of the things um, that I was going to say, but yeah, really my likely is it's probably somewhere in the middle. I think some countries are going to respond better than others and maybe that's just because some countries have the means to respond. So in the countries that don't have the means to respond, there's going to be some really big challenges. And I really think in the likely scenario, there are going to be countries that, go, that have, you know, there's going to be some really bad climate um, problems. And this might come in the form of refugees. This might come in the form of total economic uh, destabilization if major economic uh, centers are wiped out and this could be through storms or through sea level rise, probably both, probably including a bunch of other factors. Um, but I do think that there are places, um, particularly in the developed nations, the, the, maybe the western developed nations, um, that will respond and change public opinion. Because really the U.S. is like the last holdout. All the other major countries totally accept the fact that climate change is a thing and that someone that everyone needs to kind of work together on this we're the the last we're not the last but we're one of the last countries to just to really take action as a nation Mm -hmm. um but as public perception shifts as more of the um issues are seen around the world then i really think that the there are a certain there's a certain view that's going to be on the wrong side of history and that view is the fact that or that view is that climate change doesn't exist and that it's a hoax or that it just doesn't matter because some people think that okay sure there are some uh, environmental issues but i'd rather make money like mm-hmm. i think looking looking back on this time people are going to realize that those people were really just like selfish assholes. Willfully ignorant. Yeah. Or will for, willfully ignorant. It depends on, you know, what, what the case is. Cause some people consciously ignore the effects and they know the effects, but it'll put a dent in the bottom line and mm-hmm. some companies act this way. Um, so yeah, I think that once that kind of stuff comes to light, there will be a complete public shift and even the U S will take action as a whole and it'll be a bipartisan issue. Um, But what happens globally in terms of sea level rise, it probably I think it might be um, a little bit better. I mean it might be closer to the best case scenario. Um, Because I also think that humans are really good at innovating. Like if we really get to the point where we trust science and we trust that we need to take a holistic approach, which there's a lot of research going into how we can tackle this from a bunch of different angles. And I think we're going to be okay. I think that we can solve the issue. And maybe this is a high tech solution. Maybe we figure out how to reflect way more sunlight back into space before it comes to the earth and gets stuck and trapped, you know, in our atmosphere. So, yeah, I think we'll figure something out, but there will be some very serious problems that countries have to go through before we take true action and start to accept science as a world society.
0: Totally. Yeah. I share your optimism that once we accept, the reality of our situation and the reality of what scientists have predicted that Mm -hmm. we have a much better outlook because we are super capable about solving problems that we put our minds to Mm -hmm. so I would say for any listeners if there is someone in your life who is very skeptical about climate change um, you know you can look at our show notes and and, uh, you know add any of the data points to the news hmm. digest of that friend or family member hmm. um, and hopefully we'll get to the point where we all agree <laughs> yeah. on the science yeah agreed well i think that's a good place to end it thank you everyone for listening this has been the future of sea level and we'll see you next time
1: The future. Bye. Uh-huh. Hey Futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.